as we continue our time. And speaking of words, I'm going to invite my friend Natalie up. Natalie has been here for several months now, and she's on staff at Camp Tejas. Her role at Camp Tejas is discipleship teacher, provider for what? There's like 40 full-time staff, something like that. Yeah. And then also during the summer, it's like a million, it seems like. Another 70 or something. Yeah, so quite a bit of team. You know, 70, but 70 college kids feels like a million people, <laughs> right? And so, anyway, so Natalie moved in from Houston, is at Camp Tejas. We've been able to have some coffee and talk, and her heart in and her passion is discipleship. And that's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks with this series about margin is kind of setting aside some time and what does it look like to be a student of Jesus. And she is studied up and ready so y'all welcome Natalie as she talks about discipleship with us this morning. Thanks, Chris. I have um, very recently been a first-time visitor with you, um, and then a second and a third time, and you have been very welcoming. Um, and so it's, it's always an honor to get to gather around God's Word with God's people, um, but it's especially sweet this morning to to be the new girl um, and get to come and open God's word with you. So thank you um, for having me. It was um, it, it was quite the experience for me to have Chris ask me uh, to come talk about discipleship. As he alluded to um, several different stops in my career, discipleship has either been a part of my actual job title or at least part of the job description. Um, and so when Chris asked me to speak on discipleship, I think I went back to him two, maybe two or three different times and asked for clarity because discipleship is one of those church words that we use to mean kind of a full range of things. Um, so for this morning, can we agree to narrow our focus a little bit and really think of ourselves in light of discipleship, right? The word disciple um, in New Testament times was not unique to the followers of Jesus. Every rabbi had disciples, meaning the people who followed that rabbi and his teaching was, and were trained by his teaching. There was an old saying that I think um, Chris has alluded to before, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, was a common saying then, right, in, in a world without pavement. Whatever your rabbi stepped in, would, if you were following closely enough behind, would end up flying up and landing on you. So it was, it was an indicator of how closely you were following the one who was teaching you. So for discipleship today, for our purposes today, we're going to think about our own followership of Jesus and the responsibility that we have in that. Discipleship and discipline, right, are also very closely related words. Discipline, not one of our favorites, usually. Um, and quite honestly, you're not ever going to hear me talk about the, um, the marathon that I'm training for or more than one go at Whole30. <laughs> um, cream is intended to be in coffee, and those whole 30 people do without dairy, and I don't know how to do life that way. So um, <clears throat> discipline, not one of our favorite things, but Hebrews 12 tells us, right, that all discipline seems um, undesirable or painful at the beginning, but for those who are trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who doesn't want to sign up 
for a life marked by the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we have all of these things called spiritual disciplines, right? Scripture talks about a whole range of them. I want to make the argument today that the way that we spend time in God's word, the discipline of studying God's word, actually informs all of our practices of other spiritual disciplines. The way we understand God's word informs the way we pray, it informs the way we fast, it informs the way we fellowship and live in community with one another. So this spiritual discipline that we're going to talk about today, I think informs all of our followship of Jesus. Our own discipleship of Jesus is completely informed with the way we handle God's word. So where we're headed today through the prophet Isaiah is here. The natural outcome of God's people consuming God's word is God's fame. It's the the natural outcome. The thing that naturally follows is that our lives make much of the Lord when we are a people of the book. Y'all turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah is one of the major prophets. He's prophesying to the southern kingdom at the time that the northern kingdom is starting to be carted off into exile and disciplined by the Lord for some things. Um, One of my favorite parts of the story of Isaiah is that on the day that God called Isaiah to be a prophet, he told him that his ministry in human terms was not going to be successful most of the time. Isaiah prophesied for about 60 years to the people of Israel, and for about 40 of those, it was exactly like God said it was going to be. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with anything he had to say. And yet he persevered in what God had called him to do. The other distinction for Isaiah um, that I think is important for us today is that he's the most quoted Old Testament author in the New Testament. More of the writers of the New Testament found Isaiah helpful and transferable to the New Covenant for us as New Covenant believers than any of the other writings in the Old Testament. So this word, right, was originally a word from God through the prophet to his people then, but we're on real solid ground for taking it as a direct word to us today. Let's start in uh, verse number one, Isaiah 55, one. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy listen listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair give ear and come to me listen that you may live there's a progression in these first three verses that i think can be really helpful for us in the way that we think about how we consume god's word the first thing he says right there in verse one is for everybody who's thirsty come to the water. God's word in our lives is the thing that sustains life, right? We can go about two minutes without air. We can go about two days without water. We can go about two weeks without food. Water is important to sustaining life. There are a whole lot of people in sub-Saharan Africa right now who are suffering and honestly dying because of a lack of clean water, right? Not only is the presence of water important in our lives, but the quality of the water is pretty important as those of us who live within the city limits of LaGrange have learned, right? Maybe don't drink straight out of the tap. Jury's still out. Um, the, The water is important. 
the, the amount and the quality, right, dehydration is a thing. It's dangerous. It actually affects every system of the way our physical bodies work. When we listen to God's word, the, wa- the word is like water to us. It quenches. But there, it, he, he goes on. Still in in, uh, verse 1, come buy wine and milk. And then in verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread? Wine, milk, and bread would have been the daily sustenance for the original audience of this passage. They were an agricultural and and pastoral people, so they were probably raising sheep and goats that they would milk. Um, Bread would have been like a pita or a tortilla that we would think of, they could quickly get it from the grain that grew out of the ground to something that they could do life on. Wine was how they preserved fruit um, so that you didn't just have the short season that the fruit was um, ripe and good, but you could uh, consume it for a longer season. It would be, um, right, your bowl of oatmeal or the the thing the the PB&J, whatever the daily, everyday, kind of normal food is. But he actually goes a step farther. Still in verse 2, listen to me and eat what is good and delight in the richest affair. Here's where we can insert what we celebrate with, what we feast on, right? We've just come out of the holidays and probably still, honestly, a little bloated from it, right? Um, but by the time we get back to Thanksgiving next year, this year, we'll be looking forward to fill in the blank. Is it the cornbread dressing? Is it the pie that Mimi makes? What is the, the right, mamaw's blank? Um, or is it the, the birthday meal that you ask for every year? The steak just right over the charcoal, please don't overcook it. Um, with maybe some shrimp and some mushrooms, right? Um, there's some blue cheese in the meal somewhere for me. So um, whatever that, that thing is, what, what we feast on, God's word quenches thirst, it maintains life day to day, and we get to feast on it. And it's a buffet, it's all you can eat, right? Like, However, most buffets for us is really like all you can stand, not all you can eat. Economics dictates that if for a set price I'm going to offer you everything you can possibly eat, the quality of the food goes down. That, not this, right? It's everything we can possibly consume, and yet it's good and the richest affair. God's word is altogether simple and quenching and satisfying. And it's also complex and mysterious. When I was in college, I was on my way to being certified to teach high school journalism, like yearbook and newspaper. So I took several courses in the school of journalism. And it was the 90s. And at the time, USA Today was all the rage in the world of journalism. And it undid some of my journalism professors. To that point, the gold standard in American journalism was the New York Times. The columns are narrow, the words are big, the stories are long. They hardly ever print photographs, and when they do, they're grainy and black and white. The, the New York Times is not aesthetically pleasing, but it was, it was the pinnacle of journalism until our attention spans got shorter and shorter, and someone smart enough to put together 
USA Today realized full color, lots of photos, shorter stories, written at a lower reading level so that we could read it more quickly. The journalism world didn't love it. In fact, I had a journalism professor who referred to USA Today as the McPaper. He said that what USA Today did to journalism is the same thing that McDonald's had done to food. And I think that we, um, in contemporary Christian culture, we sometimes do that to God's word. We'll take the quick hit, buzz through the drive through get what you can, in either the short devotional on your way out the door, or just in that 50-second thing that comes on the Christian radio station on the drive to work. And if we're honest with one another, right, there's a place for the McNuggets of life. In particular seasons when the dishwasher's on the fritz or work's particularly difficult or you haven't made it to HEB, a McNugget or two's not going to kill anybody. And for me, it's not the McNuggets, but the bean burritos from the joint across the street. But, right, we, we all have a favorite for the drive through I feel duty-bound as a Texan to, to say that we, um, we leave Whataburger in a category all of its own. Um, where Whataburger's always okay. But the McNuggets are a different story. Kids coming into college who are learning to feed themselves, right, for the first time, everybody appreciates that there's a particular season of life, hopefully a short one, where we can sustain life on Pop-Tarts and Twinkies and ramen. But... When we mature into adulthood, we should probably put the Twinkies away, except for on a rare occasion, maybe. They fry them at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. I understand that's pretty good. But, right, that should be the rare exception. Taking the McNuggets of Scripture and hoping to sustain a mature walk with the Lord with it is the same thing. We need to come to Scripture with a fork and a knife sometimes. In, in some seasons, maybe all we can do is grab a McNugget or two. But there ought to be times, may, maybe times around celebration, right? We're about to start the Lenten season on the church calendar, a, a season of preparing for celebrating Easter. That Maybe that's a time that it's good to intentionally get the fork and knife out, pr- plan the meal, go grocery shopping, Build the charcoal fire for the steak as opposed to hitting the drive through Maturity brings a fork and a knife. Let's uh, skip ahead to verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. There's a profound mystery at play here. We can cultivate the ground, right? Any farmer who's honest will tell you that we can, the word cultivate is create an environment that leads to growth. Even as good as the Aggies are, we can produce a maroon carrot, But still, a lot of what happens is beyond human control, still. 
We can make sure the soil has the right pH balance. We can make sure the water is there, fertilized, keep the bugs away. We, we, can, we can do some things, but the way a seed turns into something that's edible for us, we really don't have any control over. And, and what Isaiah is saying here is that God's word inclining our ear to what God has to say is the same thing. It accomplishes things in us that really is a mystery to us. I don't understand how it happens, but it happens. God says it's going to accomplish the thing that he sent it out for. God's word accomplishes things in our lives. God's word talks about itself in several different areas, right? It was breathed out by God, which, by the way, so were we when God created Adam the way he... He brought life to Adam was to breathe on him. And the word uses the same language to describe how we got God's word. It was breathed out. Um, It's useful, right? It, It trains us in righteousness. It corrects us. It's profitable. There's a profound mystery that comes with that being a part of our lives. And there's a natural outcome. Look at uh, verse 12. You will go out with joy. And be led forth in peace. Let's sign me up for that. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown. For an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The natural outcome of God's people consuming God's word is God's fame. We've um, complicated it, um, and I think rightly so, culturally speaking, right? We're a Western people on this side of the Industrial Revolution. When we can identify um, a problem or um, an issue of any kind, we come up with a multi-step process in order to meet the need or fix the problem. So you you can get a seminary degree in evangelism now, There are complex systems like um, evangelism explosion around that you can memorize. When I was um, a student in the 80s, um, in order to go on a high school mission trip, I had to memorize the four spiritual laws, right? A little gospel tract, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? We, We can memorize ways to bring people into the kingdom to make much of God. What I think this is saying, though is that while those things have their place, if we as God's people are relying on God's word, if we're inclining our ear for it to be the water that we drink, for it to be the day-to-day sustenance, and for it to be the thing that we feast on, the natural result of that is that myrtles grow instead of thorns. Our lives end up making much of the Lord and it says it's, a, it's an everlasting sign that will endure because we're God's people consuming God's word. It's the natural outcome. I spent uh, some time serving overseas um, in the third world, which was an adjustment going. But when you go to live there, you have all this adrenaline, right? You're real excited to, to make the adjustment to what it means to live in the third world. Uh, I was there for several years, and then coming back is a whole different deal. There's a fancy word for it called reverse culture shock. 
Um, but it's hard to, some argue, even harder to come home than it is to go. That particular year, I, um, I think I flew home on June 1st, um, and I had, um, at one point, had scheduled a wedding date in July of that year. And then that didn't happen. So in July of that year, right after coming home, instead of um, getting married, I was looking for a job. I had to interview for jobs and find a new place to live and, um, and settled in a new ministry position that was um, great. Um, but that season, that early that fall, um, was difficult. I, I was working through reverse culture shock and, you know, learning that you can drink out of the tap again and um, drive on the other side of the road and all of those things, not have to step over raw sewage when you go to other people's houses, you know, little things. Um, but I was also in a period of grief. I was, I, I had to mourn the loss of that relationship and the, the loss of the expectations of becoming a wife. And so it was a, it was a hard season. About that, uh, during that same season, some, some themes began to recur over and over for me. I heard them in sermons. I heard them in worship songs where I'd never heard them before. There was, honest to goodness, in Austin traffic one day, a bumper sticker. Um, and it was that thing where you're like, yeah, that's in Scripture somewhere, but I don't, I don't really know where. So I sat down one day to find it and ended up discovering. I, I thought that what I kept hearing were a few different um, passages, but discovered that that it was all in the same passage. The last 13 verses of Romans chapter 8 say some real beautiful things. It says that when we don't know how to pray like we should, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And that, um, that in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And that nothing, and there's a long list in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us. About that same time, the church that I'd been attending introduced um, a Bible study method that they were encouraging everybody to use. It was called REAP. Read, examine, apply, pray. So what, what does it say? What does it mean? Why does it matter? So we were challenged. We, we all got new little journals from the um, church. We were challenged to sit down, make it a spiritual discipline, right? To open God's word, to read it, to examine it, to apply it to our lives, and then pray each morning. So I started in those 13 verses. I was in a little garage apartment. I had a love seat that someone gifted to me when I returned to the States because I also didn't have any furniture. And, um, and I, I opened my new little journal and started with those 13 verses. And some days I would read all 13 verses and write about what I felt like I had gleaned from them. And other days um, it would be just a verse or just a complete sentence, right? Because verses and complete sentences is not always the same thing was an English teacher. It bothers me sometimes. Um, so sometimes I would read just a phrase. Honestly, I spent so much time in that passage that there were days that I would sit down to read and get two words in and would know that I had everything that the Lord had provided for me for that day. I ended up spending about six months in those 13 verses over and over and over again. At the end of it, I had them memorized 
And to this day, when I hear them referenced in a sermon or in a song, it reminds me of that season. And not because I'm especially attuned to God's word or God's voice, but because I feasted on it, it it quenched my soul and it got me through the day-to-day, and I feasted in those 13 verses for that season, the Lord healed me during that time. I can, from this perspective, looking back on that time, say that he answered my prayer of not allowing me to be one of the bitter single people that we've all come in contact with or one of the bitter former missionaries that we've all come in contact with. It's a rough combination. But, um, but I think that the myrtle grew instead of the thorn bush. That, that season could have resulted in some ugliness hanging around. But the Lord, in his deep love for me and graciousness, used his word to allow things to grow in my life that I, it's a mystery to me as to how they got there, quite honestly. There's an enduring friendship that started during that season, and I've actually said to her on multiple occasions, I don't really understand how we're friends, because when we met, I'm not real sure who I was. It was rough. But the Lord took his word and allowed some really beautiful things to grow where really there could have been some ugliness. The natural outcome of God's people consuming God's word is God's fame. I've gotten to right today and on multiple occasions with former missionaries, future missionaries, and other single people. I've gotten to make much of the Lord um, in the story of my life and of that season um, because he used his word in my life to grow some things that are beautiful and a mystery to me. Let's, as a people, get out the forks and the knives and dig in to the, the wonderful thing that he has provided to quench our spirits, to provide for us day to day, and to let us celebrate in. We all pray with me. Father God, thank you that you preserved your word um, over a whole lot of history and human events um, in ways that are only miraculous. That's the only way to see it and to understand it. Um, You've provided for us um, our daily bread in real ways and um, the things that we can feast on. Lord, would you take your word Um, implant it into our lives as we consume it and allow it to grow beautiful things that really go well beyond anything that we can understand or explain. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Natalie. Good word. Good word. Feast. And not on Whataburger, as good as it is. Feast. That's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is to create margin in your life. That those things that are the most important, you set dates, you set appointments, and you, you move everything else around in your schedule because that's important. And so that's what Natalie is saying, is that you, we have to push other things away that are good things but are not necessarily the best things in these moments. So that you can feast and to enjoy the presence of God and to see what God has for you.